You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, and uh, as you turn there, uh, this is, uh, we're going to do several months of what we call blueprints. So last month was blueprints on hearing the voice of God. Uh, this month is going to be blueprints to develop a stronger prayer life. And what we're going to talk about today specifically with Nehemiah is what it means to pray with passion. Uh, and so as you're turning to Nehemiah, if you don't know much about uh, him or that story, I want to just give you a real quick sort of background and backstory. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, which is the book right before Nehemiah, uh, those two individuals are closely connected in the history of Israel and the history of what God does in this world. Um, in 536 BC, uh, King uh, Cyrus def- uh, defeats Babylon, Persia defeats Babylon, and uh, he issues a decree, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but a decree where the uh, Israelites who had been enslaved can uh, go home back to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah and Ezra deal with those second and third groups of the people of Israel who are returning back to Jerusalem. That's roughly 465 to 440 B.C., And Ezra is seen as a scribe or one who would have uh, written down the word of God from scroll to scroll. And uh, he was also a priest. He largely focused on the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem and the spiritual restoration of Israel. Uh, Ezra called out sin and called it out forcefully in the people of Israel's lives. Nehemiah, who we're going to look at today, uh, he really encouraged the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and took on uh, the security concerns for the city and particularly in dealing with their enemies who were against them. And one of the things that's neat, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, a, a vital resource for you in every person's study should be a good chronological Bible. Because we look at our Bible sometimes and we have all these books just kind of put together, right? Ezra and Nehemiah actually fall in between the prophets Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, and then uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So where our Bible is put together, they're sort of over here, but really where they're taking place is in between two different sections of prophets and is really entrenched sort of in the telling of Second Chronicles. So a good chronological Bible, I'm going to say it again, is a must for anyone who really wants to study God's Word and see these things play out sort of in real time, if you will, rather than them just being books that are just sort of set apart uh, by themselves. So let's read Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11, and get into this today about praying with passion. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. 
Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayer of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So before we get into the three points that are in your bulletin, I want to just kind of walk through those first few verses of Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah is in this town called Susa, or some uh, descriptions of it pronounce it Shusha. It's a town that's roughly 900 miles or so from Jerusalem, and uh, obviously in that day, no mass transit, no cars, no planes to get on or anything of that nature. So it was roughly considered to be about a four-month journey from that city back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has a concern for his people and for that city. Notice again, it says, when his brothers come, one of his brothers comes in verse 2, I ask them about the Jews. He has a specific asking, he has a specific concern that instigates this prayer that he prays that we're going to look at in just a moment. And it's the response of his brother, Hanani, that moves him to this great prayer. It's the answer he receives to the question that moves him to this great prayer. It would have been super easy for Nehemiah just to have very little or very superficial concern for that answer. It would have been super easy for him 900 miles away to say, well, you know, they, they probably brought this on themselves. Additionally, Nehemiah was in a really good spot in his life. Again, just quick background here. The, the people of Israel have been taken uh, prisoner. They've been in exile in Babylon. King Cyrus of Persia comes along, defeats Babylon by God's own plan, as foretold through the scriptures. And King Cyrus then basically allows the Jews, if they want to, the Hebrew people, to return back to Jerusalem or to stay. And we don't know much about Nehemiah and his early beginnings, but given the fact that he is now the cupbearer to the king who's in, in, uh, in ruling in that, in that moment, apparently his family chose to stay. They chose to stay in Babylon under Persian rule rather than go back to Jerusalem. And apparently they chose to stay and he did enough to gain this highly valued and highly trusted position to the king. One of the descriptions of the cupbearer uh, that I read through some of my resources this week says this. A cupbearer had the king's confident, confidence and trust, and because of his character, was able to exert influence in the royal court. So Nehemiah is in a good way. He's got a good position. He's able to exert influence within the government. 
if he's in a good position, you could probably be sure that whatever family he had was in a good position as well. And so I don't think anybody would have faulted Nehemiah to hear this and go, well, okay, I'll pray for him, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And yet, and what Nehemiah does here is not only prays for him, but he also decides to do something as God leads him to do something. Prayer is often driven by the misfortune of others. It's often driven by the close connection that we have with others when they are experiencing misfortune. But, but I, want us to, I want us to get this about Nehemiah today. He has a deep compassion and a deep desire for these people 900 miles away. And his actual connection to them was really very superficial. Generations had moved on. Generations had stayed back. There was likely no real, I mean, FaceTime didn't exist. Texting didn't exist. Like there, there was not this interconnection between Jerusalem and Susa that was, they were, you know, constantly in conversation with one another. And yet to these people who really all he had a connection with was bloodline. To these people who were so far away from him and literally in that day and time a world away. He has this deep compassion and desire in his prayer for them. And so I want us to learn from that uh, from Nehemiah today. So the first point for us today is this. It's prayer that confesses sin. How do we pray with passion? How do we develop a stronger prayer life? We have prayer that confesses sin. Look at verse 4, if you will, to lead us into verses 5 through 7. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Notice the, the progression. Verse 2, I asked, then I heard, then I wept, then I mourned and fasted and prayed for days. We don't know how many days are in the days, but apparently some amount of time that before he even gets to the actual prayer, he has a response to the situation that's going on. Sometimes I think we pray about things without letting ourselves have response to things. And when we're talking about praying for people and praying with people that we have deep connection with, we should never bypass the response, the weeping, the fasting, the, the, the hurt that we feel when they are feeling hurt in situations. There's a lot of preliminary activity that goes on before he really even begins to pray. But he does begin to pray, verse 5, then I said, and he begins with an acknowledgement of God. Look again at verse 5. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. He begins his prayer with an acknowledgement of God and God's greatness and God's glory and God's power and God's name and so on and so on and so forth. When Jesus teaches about prayer in Matthew 6 and teaches this thing called the Lord's Prayer, he begins in a very similar way, depending on how you grew up learning it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Over and over in the scriptures, what we see is that prayer that is done well is prayer that positions God first in the right place in the right honor. Sometimes we just want to jump into the meat of it, don't we? God, I need this. God, I'd like for you to do this. We begin always by putting God in the first and highest place. 
Now, uh, how you do that looks differently to each individual. How long you do that, uh, how many words you do that, uh, use to describe that, or that, that's different. But for every one of us, our prayers ought to begin here, not here. We begin with praying to him, honoring him, positioning him in the right place. And so he continues, and before Nehemiah asks for anything, he goes into confession. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Notice the framework of the confession. Nehemiah doesn't say they have sinned, but we have sinned. He doesn't say you have sinned or them have sinned, but I and my family have sinned. He really very easily could have said the disastrous times upon this people probably as a result of the bad things they've done. And yet he includes himself in this confession. He includes his family in this confession. Uh, again, this is very similar to prayers that we see uh, through the scriptures. Uh, just a couple pages to your left um, in Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra 10, there's this uh, place where the people confess their sin. They fall on their face before the Lord and they confess all of their sins. But Ezra chapter 9, Ezra does a similar thing to what Nehemiah does. Listen to verses 5 through 7 from Ezra 9. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. There's again that response, right? I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands to the Lord my God and I prayed, Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you. For our sins are piled higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. This is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of pagan kings of the land. We've been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are now. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, Daniel does this. He prays, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. He gives God that first place, right? You, also, you always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land." See, there's this, there's this common, common phrase through uh, phrasing of the prayer through the Old Testament where people like Ezra and Daniel and Nehemiah and others stand up and say, Lord God, you are great, you're awesome, you're all this, we give you proper place, and before we ask you for anything, what we're going to say to you is, we are in agreement that we've sinned. And notice what they aren't doing. They aren't praying, God, because of all that pagan sin out there, stuff's happening. God, because of all the people in the culture and the, the people in the lands around us, bad things are happening. They are assuming full responsibility for what's happening, not because of the sin of other people, but because of the, their own and, as Daniel and Ezra put it, all the way back to their ancestors. 
They're going all the way back in their history to say, yeah, I remember 100, 200, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago when our people messed up. You don't hear that kind of acknowledgement from the church today. What we like to say is all the stuff that's going around us is because of their sin and what they're doing. And we don't have anything to confess for, but we do. We do. And Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and others give us this understanding of prayer. You might, you might say, well, that's Old Testament and, you know, things changed. Things didn't change. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to the, to the church at Corinth, and he has highlighted in a previous letter to them a specific sin that's going on in their church. And he does highlight the individuals that are involved. But in 1 Corinthians 5, in his response to this letter that we don't have, he basically calls the entire church of Corinth to repentance. Because they allowed it to go on. And not only did they allow it to go on, they actually boasted about it. They actually were prideful about what was going on in their community. Now, we don't know exactly how they boasted, exactly how they were prideful, but nonetheless, Paul encourages an entire church in the city of Corinth, which really would have been made up of multiple pockets of people, right? He calls the entire church to repentance over the sin of one individual in their church. God calls his people to confess and repent in a broad scale. We've lost some of this because we focus so much on this individual salvation. And understand, we are saved individually. I made a personal choice to trust in Jesus. You who are here today or you who are watching today, if you're a Christian, you made a personal choice to trust in Jesus. You are not Christian because you belong to a certain nation like Israel did. You're not God's people because of you have a specific demographic you are a Christian, you are God's persons or people or family because you made an individual choice. But the individual choice of salvation is always into community. It's always into the body of Christ. It's always into the family of God. And so therefore, we should understand that confession includes all of that. And look again at his confession. It's very specific we have sinned, verse 7, we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. The words commands and decrees have to do with the authoritative instructions given by God. The things that God had said previously as recorded in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. There had been certain things that God had said to Israel, don't do this. And they had violated many, many of those things. And so the first part of the confession is, I agree with you, God, and Nehemiah says, we've, we've broken the word that you gave us. But the third word there is regulations in my translation. It's a word that describes right from wrong. More importantly, it's a word that describes discerning or understanding right from wrong. And it's written really in this way. It is a confession where Nehemiah is saying, through the regulations that we have disobeyed, I agree with you, God, that we have messed up. See, confessing sin is not just listing it off. 
It's not just recalling our bad mistakes. It's not just, you know, pointing to a piece in in our life, in our history, or in our last week and going, yeah, God, I messed up. Forgive me for that. It is confessing it, realizing it, listing it, calling about it, and being in agreement with God that it was sin. This is what the prodigal son does, right? When he comes home to the father, what does he say? Against you, father, and against the heavenly father, have I sinned? He doesn't come home in that story and go, hey, dad, I messed up. Can I have my room back? He comes home and confesses and says, yes, indeed, I have sinned against you. The reason this is so important is, again, because though we are saved individually, we are saved into community, and everything we do affects one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this powerful little small book called Life Together, the classic exploration of Christian community. And he says this, when sin ever occurs in the community, he must examine and blame himself for his own unfaithfulness in prayer and intercession, lack of brotherly service, of fraternal reproof and encouragement, And indeed, for your own personal sin and spiritual laxity, which is just laziness, by which he has done injury to himself, the fellowship, and the brethren. Since every sin of every member burdens and indicts the whole community, the congregations can rejoice in the midst of all the pain that it has the privilege of bearing and forgiving. He's writing about this this ministry that we have to one another, of, of hearing one another's sins and offering forgiveness and walking through forgiveness. But in the midst of it, he says, no person's sin affects only himself or herself. Every sin is involved within the community, and every sin should, ask, uh, should prompt us to ask, where is my sin in the midst of the community? And then offer up repentance, confession, and forgiveness for that. Tuesday in my blog post, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, about what we see in terms of how sin affects the community of God's people. But that, understand, this is the importance of this confession of Nehemiah. He doesn't stand before God and go, God, those folks in Jerusalem really messed up. He, nor Ezra, nor Daniel stand before God and go, God, all those lost people, it's their sin that's bringing judgment upon us. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthian church, you know the pagans that are still in Corinth that don't believe in Jesus yet? They're the ones that are causing you harm. Over and over and over, the Bible says confession begins here. In my life, and in your life, and in the body of Christ together. Now, one final thing before we move on to point two, and I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but it's this. True confession leads to repentance. True confession leads to a change. I have no doubt that I'm not the only parent in this room who has looked at a child and said, if you were really sorry, you wouldn't do it again. (laughs) Right? Because that's what they do. They come to us, I'm sorry, okay. And then two days later, they're sorry for the same thing, right? I don't know if you ever thought about it, but you're teaching your kid repentance. That true sorrow means I'm not going to do it again. And true sorrow and confession before the Lord means we're walking away from it. 
We're not repeating it. We're not doing it. So his prayer begins with confession. Point two, he begins to pray the promises of God. Look at verses eight and nine. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be made honored. I'm not going to read it today, but if you want to write down Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5, go there sometime this week and look at these promises of God that he made through the voice of Moses to the people, which is part of the promises that Nehemiah is representing here. That God had promised, even if you're taken all the way out of this land to the ends of the earth, if you will turn Turn back to me, come back to me, I will restore you, I will bring you back. And so Nehemiah begins to plead the case for Israel by talking about these promises. Remember what you told your servant Moses. Remember what you said, God. As I plead for, as I intercede for my friends, my family, these people who I have this connection with, even though it's really very superficial, remember your promises to them. And look at the end of verse 9. It says, part of the promise is, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Again, a place for you to read this week, Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 through 11. And it's where God speaks through Moses and says to the people of Israel, there's going to be a place where you're going to specifically honor my name. That place obviously became Jerusalem, the place of the temple, the place where they would go to have that worship. The dwelling place of God became that temple. And so there's, there are promises here that he's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back from exile. He's going to bring them back to the land. But notice the focus of the promise. The focus of the promise is the worship of God. This phrasing, a place for my name to be honored, a place for my name to dwell, a place for you to revere my name, to fear my name, to honor my name, all has to do with worship of God. Yes, God's promises was that he was going to restore. And yes, God's promises was that, or that he was going to uh, bring them back to the land. But ultimately, the focal point of God's promises was that he would get praise. And when we plead our case before the Lord, and we intercede for people, or we intercede for ourselves, and we plead and we say, God, you've promised, you've promised, you've promised, don't get so caught up in the you've promised that you forget the praise. Because this is the point of the promise. We can, we can pray God's promises ourselves today. The promise of his peace, the promise of his strength, the promise of his comfort, the promise of his provision, the promise of his patience and his presence with us. But the goal is that he would be praised, not solely that we would receive We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a moment. Third point, he prays ultimately for success. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. 
Ultimately, Nehemiah prays in the, the closing of this particular prayer about the work that is set before him. But he does it with, in three very distinct ways. Verse 10, again, he appeals to God's honor and God's promise. The people you rescued, he says, by your great power and strong hand are your servants. In other words, he's saying to God, you brought them out of Egypt and you've even orchestrated all the rest of this, and now you're bringing them back. He, he's, he's honoring God. He's honoring God's name. He's honoring God's promise. He's honoring God's character as he begins to pray for success in his endeavors. Again, this is very common through the scriptures. In Exodus 32, 11 through 14, uh, Moses and them have come down off the mountain. Uh, Israel's made the golden calf. They're all celebrating around it and worshiping it, and God is ready to wipe Israel out. And Moses says in Exodus 32, 11 through 14, and I'm giving you the paraphrase of it, he basically says to God, God, would you have the nations around us think so little of you that you saved us only to wipe us out? God, would you have the nations around us to think that your character is such that you brought us out of Egypt only to just do away with us now? He appeals to God's character. He appeals to God's honor. He appeals to the fame of God's name. And Nehemiah does this there in verse 10, reminding them, reminding God, the people you rescued by your great power and your strong hands, they're your servants. Secondly, he does this. He apparently enlisted other prayer warriors. Look at the first part of verse 11. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Now, when you send a prayer request in and we send an email out to those on our prayer list, that's, this is what we're doing. We're enlisting other prayer warriors, but, but I fully expect that not every one of you send me every prayer request that you have. And so I encourage you today by Nehemiah's actions here, enlist some other people to pray with you. Enlist other people to know about your situations, to know about your needs, to know about the needs and situations of others, and to have them pray with you. But look at what they are in agreement with. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Some of your translations use words like fear or revere, but the meaning is all the same. The meaning is that as they prayed, they desired that God would receive the glory above everything else. They desired that God would receive honor above everything else. No matter how he answered, no matter how he acted, no matter whether it was quick or years down the road, they were focused, they were centered on praying and delighting themselves or desiring themselves in honoring God. That, that ties directly back to the end of verse 9. And when God said that I'm going to take you back, back to a place where my name will be honored. Listen, we, we, praise of God is central to everything we do. And I'm not just simply talking about worship, music, or praise in this 11 o'clock hour. I'm talking about throughout our lives the praising of God. And the praising of God is not contingent on whether or not he answers your prayer or my prayer our way. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are getting ready to be thrown into that, in that fiery furnace for not bowing down to that image. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to you. That's honoring God's name. 
That's giving his name glory. That's giving him glory. God, God will save us, but even if he doesn't. God will heal me of cancer, but even if he doesn't. God will give me my money that I need, but even if he doesn't. God will restore my family, but even if he doesn't. God will heal our land, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't, we praise him. We praise him. And we enlist other people to praise him with us. When people have that central focus of praising God, of giving God glory, of making sure that his name is above every other name, that's when God works. That's when God steps in. And the third thing he does in this ending part of the prayer is he asks God to do a work in the king. Please grant me success today, he says, by making the king favorable to me Put it into his heart to be kind for me. At this point in the prayer, Nehemiah is all in on whatever God asks him to do. At this point in the prayer, Nehemiah is ready to storm the gates, storm the castles, do whatever it is God asks him to do. But look at what he does. He asks God to do a work in someone else to make it happen. In our prayer life, it may be as important for us to ask God to do something in someone else's life as it is for us to ask God to do something in ours. If you have a, you have a friend, you have a family member that's lost, that doesn't know Jesus, that your heart breaks for, part of your prayers on the daily should be, God, do a work in their life. Because outside of God doing a work in their life, they're not going to listen to you. Outside of the Holy Spirit bringing a change to that person, they're not going to be impressed with what you know. God, do a work in that friend's life. God, do a work in that family member's life. God, do a work in these politicians' lives. God, do a work in this community life. God, do a work in, in the people around us that we may be able to step into the task of ministry knowing that you've gone ahead and prepared it for us. It's what Paul writes in Ephesians, that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. But we follow Nehemiah and we pray and we ask God to do something in someone else's life for success. One final thought as we begin to close today. Look again how he says it in verse 11 where he talks about the king please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me put it into his heart to be kind to me in those days I was the king's cupbearer look at chapter 2 verse 1 in Nehemiah early the following spring in the month of Nisan during the 20th year of king Artaxerxes reign I was serving the king his wine I had never before appeared sad in his presence and the king asked me why are you looking so sad you don't look sick to me you must be deeply troubled and from there on Nehemiah basically spills the whole story to him but I want you to understand this that's about four months after Nehemiah praised that prayer that Nehemiah confesses that Nehemiah gives God praise, that he enlists people to pray with him, that he prays and remembers the promises of God and challenges God with his promises, and he prays for success. The scripture says, pray today that something's done in the king's life, but he waits four months before he actually says anything to the king. We want microwave prayers I'm telling you, God works more through crockpots than he does microwaves. 
Because my guess is in those four months, God was probably seeing, oh, how much more is Nehemiah going to pray about this? How much more is Nehemiah and the people that he's got praying with him, are they going to come to me with, with this? Now, my assumption, my guess is that they continue to do it because God ultimately works, right? He ultimately does the work in the king's life, and he moves Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And, and if you've never read the book of Nehemiah, I encourage you to read it in its entirety this week and see what God does through all that. But understand, Nehemiah prays, but then he doesn't act until God opens the door. And so often what we pray is, God, I'm getting ready to do this. Bless it. And what we ought to be praying is, God, we think we're supposed to do this, or we think I'm supposed to do this, or I think I'm supposed to make this decision. I'm coming before you in confession, in the promises of God, in remembering who you are, but I'm not going to move until you move me. Man, we are not people who do that well. We are not people, and, I, and I, I, I'm, I'm the chief of you. It's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to pray that and pray that and pray that and pray that and wait for God to say, okay, go. I got a, I got a 65-pound, nine-month-old dog over there, and I go outside and I play with him. And I get him to his spot, and I got the Frisbee and I got the ball, and I tell him to sit, and he looks at me, and I say, wait, wait, wait. And if I, if I twitch the slightest, man, he's gone. And if he leaves and I haven't said go yet, I make him come back. Here? And when we leave and God hasn't said go yet, here, come back. I know you've been praying about it. I know you've been asking about it. I know you, I know you want me to do something, but I haven't said yes yet. Here. And we wait until he opens that door for us. Nehemiah prayed as one who was part of a covenant community, the people of Israel. He prayed for not only his people, but he prayed for himself. He prayed recognizing their sin affected one another. He prayed recognizing God's promises was to all of that community. He prayed and enlisted people to pray with him. Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, you may have been individually saved, but you are part of a covenant community. You're a part of a covenant community that includes this local body of believers. You're a part of a community that includes the body of believers that's gathered over that hill and that hill and this hill and that hill and in other states and in other nations and in other parts of the world. A covenant community that worships differently than we do but worships the same as we do in other places that dresses nice or dresses in flip-flops and jeans that meet in big, beautiful places like this at 11 o'clock, or they meet in, in small, dingy holes in their basement for fear of persecution in another part of the world. And our sin affects the community. Our prayers affect the community. God's promises are for the community. May we pray like Nehemiah, individually and corporately. God God, here's your place, here's your position, here's what you do. I confess, we confess, we've wronged you, but remember your promises. Remember your promises. Move us to action. Grant us success for your kingdom and for your mission, God. To you be the glory. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.